Hear the word of God from Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, there is a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm afraid, I'm ashamed to beg. Ah, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly, help, worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you this morning on this Lord's Day. Also, special greeting to those who are mothers, both physically and spiritually. Thank you for being such examples of God's love and care. Mothers are awesome. I want to especially thank all the spiritual mothers out there. I've been blessed the course of my life by many women who have, been, who have taught me, encouraged me, and loved me well. They may not have been my biological mother, but God has used them as spiritual mothers in my life. My mom was awesome, and I love her. She was one of the best moms you could ever ask for, but she worked all the time. My parents had to work a lot, and I was blessed with other spiritual mothers who were able to help her encourage me my whole life. My boys right now have one of the best mothers, if not the best, I'm biased, but the best mother they could ever have. Their mother is amazing, but we're also so blessed, my boys, to have some of the most incredible spiritual mothers in this church body. There are women in this church who love my boys so well, who teach them, encourage them, 
model Christ's love for them, admonish them, hold them accountable, just our spiritual mothers to them. So I want to thank all of those, all of you who are spiritual mothers to my boy. It is a joy and a privilege that we don't raise our kids and our children by ourselves, but we raise them as a community, as a village together. So happy Mother's Day to all of you as well. This morning we're in one of the most confusing, difficult parables in the Gospels. James just literally tapped me on the shoulder as, as, uh, as Stephen was reading, he goes, good luck. <laughs> so I appreciate that, James. Parable of the shrewd manager. Scholars have debated over elements of this parable throughout history. You might have heard it, but if you've heard it read this morning, you're kind of like, huh, interesting. Interesting choice of scripture. We didn't want to skip over it because we, we, we preach through the scriptures. So this is in the scripture, and we want to preach in it. So we're going to start at the top. At the very least, we can identify from the very beginning that the original audience, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Probably refers to the larger group than the twelve. The people who follow Jesus most closely, but we're not exactly sure how many people that entailed, but people, these are followers of Jesus, not his enemies, not the Pharisees who he's been giving other parables to. These, this is a parable given to his followers. He's teaching his own students to the sheep who belong to him. And in his teaching, he introduces us to two characters, a wealthy master and the manager of his estate. And right off the bat, we notice, we see the conflict in the story. The managers have been accused of squandering his master's property and is about to be fired. And before we go even further in the story, we need a little background information. First, we need to know that a manager of an estate could act in every capacity as the owner's agent. The manager had full authority to buy, sell, handle the property of his master. His decisions were to equal the master's decisions. His character was considered to reflect the master's character. He was supposed to be a steward of the master's estates. In other words, this guy, this steward, was supposed to be in every way a diplomat, a representative, a steward, uh, not just a manager, but kind of a very representative of the, the master himself. Whatever the manager did was as if the master himself had done it. So the first question you ask yourself as you're reading this parable, as you hear this parable, is, is the master a good guy or a bad guy? Right, you kind of ask that question. Most parables, you don't have to ask that question because often the parable, the, the, the father figure, the master is often God. So you don't have to ask that question. But in this figure, it's not, he's never said that the master is God. Please don't hear that this master is God. You with me so far? He clearly does not want the manager squandering to reflect badly on himself. But is this because this master is an upsetting businessman or is it because he doesn't want to be cheated by the manager? Jesus doesn't tell us. He doesn't necessarily tell us if this master is a good person or not, a righteous person or not. So when the prospect of getting fired, the manager panics. He says, what should I do? He asks himself, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm way too weak for manual labor, which I just love the fact he knows this about himself. You know, he's like, these hands, mm-mm. Which, by the way, my parents, they're kind people, but they used to say that about me. They're like, Lawrence, your hands, you're never meant to do manual labor. I was like, is that insult, or what is that supposed to be? And then he says he's too proud to beg. Right? So he's like, these hands can't do manual labor, and I'm way too proud to beg. So what is he going to do? So he's honest with himself. He's like, i got to do something. And the Bible says he's shrewd. He's clever. 
He's smart. He's street smart. He's, he's got a plan. So he comes up with this elaborate scheme. And he's, his, his scheme, his plan comes upon the, understanding the social structure of the time. The foundation of Roman class structure was patronage, an intricate system of benefactors and clients. Favors was kind of the currency of this system, and the more favors that were owed to you as a benefactor, the higher you would rank in society. That ranking was also affected by the number of favors you, as a client, owed to your benefactors. So social advancement was like everyone's goal. So putting yourself forward by associating those who are one rung above you on the social ladder while making sure you are owed enough favors by others who are rung below you, there's a constant maneuvering that was happening. And you had to have a good memory of who owed you favors, who you owed favors to, who was above you socially, who was below you socially. So the, our friend here, the shrewd manager, had a good memory. He knew who owed his master debts. And a couple of quick phone calls, he was like, who owed debts? I know, I know who to call. And now this is where the biblical scholars start to disagree with one another as they interpret this parable. Some say the manager was clearing the books of overcharges. Overcharging was a common means of collecting interest on the debt without calling it interest, which would have been illegal of Jewish law. If a master was in on the game, he would not want it to be known that he had overcharged his customers, so he might be willingly going along with it to save face. <clears throat> in Jewish law, it's prohibited to charge usurious interest for loans, but business people got around it by increasing the interest in the total charge for a product. So, for example, in the oil industry, which was significant, the use of olive oil had a threatening dimension to it with respect to the kind of pers preservation of the products. So it was commonplace to upcharge oil by 100% from the raw cost of the oil. So in other words, if oil cost 50 bucks, they would charge 100 bucks because it was a possibility of spoilage and losing the oil. The steward knew that, the market was 100%. So he said to the debtor, I'm going to change your bill on behalf of my master. I'm going to cut it down by 100%. That's what happened. Similar cost of wheat actually was known in that time. And by the way, this information is not because I knew all about oil and wheat just naturally. I got this information from a scholar named R.C. Sproul. And so um, that's who I got this information from. So I didn't know all about oil and wheat automatically. So just throwing that out there in case you're like, man, he knows his stuff about oil and wheat back then. <laughs> but oil had a similar problem but less spoilage issues. So oil, oil, wheat markup was 20%. So in the case of the man who owed 100 bushels of wheat, the steward marked it down 20% to 80 bushels. So he got rid of this typical markup that would happen. The steward was not doing this out of the goodness of his heart. He was doing it to make sure that when he got fired, he had good friends amongst the debtors. Now others insisted the manager was simply deducting his own cut of the profits that he added to the debt without the master's knowledge. So others think the masters knew full well that the manager was padding the books for his own benefit, but didn't care because the master himself was already adding more charges. But everyone agrees that no matter what, that the manager was cheating the master in some way, right? So as we understand the story so far, the ma this manager is willing to do anything to stay afloat and live the lifestyle he was used to. He's dishonest. He was willing to cheat. He was willing to do things. He was willing to cheat his master because he said his hands were too delicate to work labor. He was too proud to beg. All this so far kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You're used to living an elevated lifestyle, right? You're cheating, and you're willing to keep on cheating to do shady business practices to keep that lifestyle. 
So far, none of this is kind of questionable. Here's what's questionable. Luke 16, 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. What? The master commended him for acting shrewdly? First, before anything, note that Jesus is not commending this man. The master is. Jesus is not saying, good job, everyone. He's doing a good job. No, Jesus is not saying that. He's saying the master is commending it. So just really quickly, all of you here are like, I like doing shady business deals. Yay. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Okay? Just to make that clear. The master is commending it. But that still doesn't make sense. The rich man said that, and is it, second, what the rich man said and did is the same kind of thing that we do all the time, though, isn't it? We may disagree with someone who's, who has a scam, who runs the scam, but we kind of might admire the ingenuity. Right? We might admire the, the theft that was done in a cool way. Alistair Begg shares a story of a couple who had their car stolen. In the morning, their car was returned with a note of apology, but also came with two tickets to one of the most hard-to-get theater tickets out there. The couple was amazed. Their car was stolen, but the note said, I'm so sorry, sorry for taking your car. Here's two tickets to this, the theater. Please go on us. The couple was, okay. So the couple went to this, the theater, but when they came back, their house was stolen of all its goods. You gotta kinda admire the creativity of the crooks a little bit, right? One commentator remarks the debtor and the people of the village in general are already celebrating praising both the manager and the master. If the master should now tell his people what has really happened and should change the figures back to where they were originally, his reputation will go down to zero. This he could not risk, so he makes the best of the situation. He must have said to himself, what a clever crook. Have you guys ever watched The Sting or any of the Oceans movies? You guys know what I'm talking about? Ever after watching one of these movies, you ever think to yourself, I could do that? <laughs> right? It might be, be honest with me, right? You ever thought like, I want to pull that off, man. I would love to do an elaborate con and commit a major crime like that. No? Yeah? Am I the only one? Am I incriminating myself right now? <laughs> Should I not be saying this out loud where it's recorded? I'm just going to be honest. It's, it's so cool. You watch these movies and it's like, Wow, you have to admire the ingenuity sometimes, right? You're like, that is awesome. They pulled that off and did what? And then like in the Oceans movie, then they donated all the money to like the charity. And he's all like in front of Oprah and they're like crying. And he's like, like the money that was stolen was donated to Oprah. And you're like, this is awesome. You have to admire the ingenuity of it. And that's part of what is happening here is that this, this master is like, well, Okay. That was pretty good, man. That was smart. That was, that was good. That was smooth. It wasn't saying that was good in regards to righteous. It's not saying that it was a good move that Christians should do. It was saying the master was acknowledging that was a shrewd, intelligent move. So then what's the point of this parable? Why is Jesus sharing this? And the point of this parable is seen in the words that follow. Chapter, uh, verse 8. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Jesus is saying that we can learn something from the example of this guy. This man used the means that were at his disposal to reach his goal. He was resourceful. He was shrewd. The point Jesus is making is not to be shady, not to be sneaky, not to go be a crook and pull off an ingenious Ocean's Eleven type of heist. He's saying be shrewd. Be intentional. Be strategic with the resources given to you while you're called to steward them. But remember that all this falls under the greater calling of putting resources in the right 
perspective. Let me explain. Jesus later on has identified two different types of people. The children of this age, which includes the manager, probably the, the, the master. And then it says children of light. Prayerfully, that means me and you as followers of Jesus. And what Jesus is saying here is that the manager knew how to handle the system of worldly wealth to his best advantage. He got it. He knew the ropes. He knew what to do. But we as children of light do not always know how to live within our system of the kingdom of God. We do not always act like we know the kingdom is already here, already transforming the world, and we're already a part of it. We fumble back and forth between two worlds, and we can't really move fluently in either one. And it's almost always money that often trips us up. The word in older translation was mammon, M-A-M-M-O-N, mammon. And I like this word because it is rich in meaning. It says more than the words money or wealth can convey. On the screen, here's, here's why. According to the New Testament scholar, Klein Snodgrass. I know. I, had to, I laugh every time. Snodgrass. What is not obvious in Greek or English is that faithful and trust and true in Hebrew and Aramaic all derive from the same root as mammon, a word that in which one places trust and is derived from amen. So mammon, which means money, which makes sense. If, if you think about money, what is really money is a place where you entrust value into something. Are you with me so far? Right? So Jesus is playing with words in the native language of his hearers. We may think of mammon as evil money, but really whatever you trust when you aren't trusting God. Think about it. What do, you call, what do you call that fund your wealthy parents set up for you from which you can you know, draw income at, from when you reach a certain age? What do, you, what do you call that? A trust fund. And it's okay if you don't have one. I don't have one either. I'm just saying. It's called a trust fund. And who is that person who manages that fund for you? A trustee. And I love this. What's printed on money? In God we trust. Right? But reality, what do we trust? You see, the message that this whole passage is really saying to us is where are we putting our trust? Don't put your trust in the wrong thing. Put your trust in God because money won't do you any good when God's kingdom is fulfilled and Christ comes again in glory. The point Jesus is making is starting to sound very familiar. You cannot serve both God and wealth. If you want to be a disciple, you have to go all in, turning away from trusting anything else that isn't God, but trusting God. He's calling us to put in the right perspective wealth and money and anything else that is not of this world. You use it for the glory of God, but you don't depend on it. You don't trust in it, but be shrewd on it. You don't make it your master. My people, please hear me well. We need to have the right perspective on money because it has been such a root of evil and hurt in the church for so long and so many times. And there's a reason why the Bible talks about it so often. And I love this passage here about money. It isn't saying money is evil and you shouldn't have it. It isn't saying if you have it, you are evil. Or if you don't, you aren't blessed by God. It is saying that money, like all gifts and resources, is of this world given to you by God for his purposes. I love where it says this. Very practically, this text says, use your wealth to gain friends so that you will have, be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You're like, what does that mean? Right? Am I supposed to just buy people meals so they can be like, I'm your friend? Right? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Do, I, do I, am I supposed to just kind of walk around and be like, will you be my friend? No, here's 10 bucks. <laughs> now you're my friend? 
No? 20? Yay! No, that's not what it's saying. Literally, what it's saying is first have the right perspective on money. Money is used for the God's glory. And use it intentionally. Use it shrewdly. See, here's one of the problems that we have with money. Guys, I want you to get this very well, right? Is that we don't use it for God, we use it for us. Pretty much all the time, it's, it's about what we want. Our wealth, our understanding of money is meant for us. And that's the problem. And I love this. Here's the problem when we have when it comes to money. Is we often think we're blessed by money. Right? We want the blessing of money. I hear this. Guys, can I tell you, this is hard to get to. This is a hard place. Many of us think that money is a blessing. God, we bless us with the new job that offers a lot of money. Right? That's kind of our mentality. We're blessed if we have a lot of money. Please hear me very well. That is not necessarily true. Do you hear that? Let me say that again. That is not necessarily true. It could be true, but it's also not true. What I mean by that is this very true and simple concept. Money is just like any other resource or gift that God gives you. That we need to have the right perspective that is just an element of life that God gives you that's similar to anything else that's part of this world that's not eternal in its significance, but it's important in its significance of what you can do now with it for the glories of God. But it can also trip you up so quickly and easily. And so we need to have a healthy perspective on money. And let me tell you something, if those of you are here, and you're like, you're just like oh, well, I don't have much of it, so all those rich people who have money, and you look at them and you judge them how they spend their money, let me tell you that you have just as much a problem with money than they do. Because you look at them jealously, and you covet what they have, that means you have an unhealthy perspective of money too. Do you hear that? I'm just throwing that out there. Because most of you, people who have no money, are like, I don't have a bad perspective of money because I don't have any money. I know you guys hear that. That's not true. Guys, let me, get, let me just be completely real and honest with you guys. We, in America, have a problem with money. I'm just going to say it. We do. I'm going to go one step further. We who live in this area have a problem with money. This area is pricey, very educated, and very wealthy. And we have an unhealthy problem with money. This practically, this text says that you use your wealth to gain friends for yourself, that you'll be welcomed into your dwellings. It means to be strategic about your money for positive influences. Don't love your money, but instead love God and use your money for him. Guys, can we understand that money is meant by God to give you whatever amount he's given you? It's like, it's like children. God is not saying that having one kid is better than having five kids, better than having no kids. Do you hear me very well? One's not better, right? It's not better to have 20 kids. It's not better to have, 20 kids is a lot of kids. Just, <laughs> but it's not better. It's not better. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's not better that you have zero kids, you have one kid, you have 20 kids. It's, there's no better in it. It's what God's called you to have. Do you hear me? It's not better that if you have a college degree or you don't have a college degree. It's called, what, it's called what he's given you to have. It's not better that if you're good at music or you're good at math. It's not better that if he's giving you uh, an ability to, to, you know, to be good at drawing or to, to, to be good at fixing cars. One's not better than the other. It's just what gift you have. And if he's giving you money, he's giving this person not much money, one's not better than the other. Do you hear that? The problem is we don't get that. 
The problem is we're jealous one way or the other, or we want it, we covet, but we don't have it in the right perspective. It's all for the glory of God and all used for God's glory. And that's what the perspective we need to have is. A right understanding of wealth and money is essential for the walk of a Christian in this culture because we are so wealthy. Now, I know some of you are going to be like, wait, I'm not wealthy. I'm pretty broke. Uh, I feel you, but let me tell you, according to the Washington Post, if you make more than $25,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the highest income of the world. Just throw that out there. According to Washington Post, if you make more than $25,000 a year, you're considered a top 10 income, top 10% income in the world. You're already in the richest top 10% if you only make $25,000 a year or more. You with me so far? So for you to say, just hear me, you with me so far, right? The average median income in the world is $2,500 a year. That's the average median income in the world. So if you make $25,000 a year, you make 10 times more than the average median income. 10 times more. We're wealthy in America. There's no getting around that. And I'll go, and there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. But there is a danger in it. I see it in myself and the Bible warns of it. When you have wealth, like I said earlier, you often trust in it. You feel confident because of it. You want more of it. It's often never enough for you. You tend to rely on God less and more and more rely on yourself. And I say this to all of you. This is, when I say you, this is me. Jesus states very clearly for us that you can't have two masters. He's saying we become enslaved so easily to money. This is what we do. Guys, can I tell you, how, how much more confidence do you have that your future is secure because you have a 401k? How much more confidence do you have because there's an emergency savings account that Dave Ramsey told you to put away? <laughs> I'm not putting down Dave Ramsey. Please hear me very well. I'm not putting down Dave Ramsey. Where's your confidence in? Is it that God will provide? Is your trust in that you have a God of the universe who knows you and loves you, or is your trust that I have enough in my bank account? And can I also tell you the other problem with wealth? Is that when you have it, you think you did everything to earn it? Can I just say that? And when you think you did everything to earn it, then you think you did, you did it all. You're in control. Let me tell you, that's my sin. I think I can control. I think I can control my life. I think I can make sense of my life. I think if I save enough here, if I work hard enough here, if I make the right decisions here, I can make bad things not happen. And let me tell you, that's not true. It's not true. And it, it's a detriment to my relationship with God. How do you not become enslaved to money? How do you, what do you do? How do you change your perspective? How do you not become enslaved? How do you not choose money as your master? How do you change that perspective? One, and I'll give you two ways. One way that I want you to hear is one is you give. One of the greatest tools God's given us to fight against temptation and trust in money, fight against consumerism and materialism is the discipline and practice of giving. Giving cheerfully and lavishly. Now, hear this. I know when people here at church or a pastor talk about giving, they often tune it out. They're like, oh, pastor, talk about giving money. 
Or they start thinking thoughts like, well, of course the pastor is going to talk about giving money. It benefits that guy. I hear you. I understand what you guys are probably thinking. I've been there. Here's the deal. The Bible talks about it a lot. It's vital to your growth. But more than that, I love you way too much to skip over a topic that's going to trip you up all the time. And I love you way too much to skip over a topic that trips me up. It is essential that you give so that you don't fall deeper in love with money than you already are. Giving helps you fall in love with God more. It is essential that you give so that you learn to place your trust in God, not your bank account and your retirement fund. It is essential that you give so that you learn what is truly valuable in this world. It is essential that you give so that your family sees that your deeds match your words. It is essential that you give because your heart tends toward greed and selfishness, and giving is like dieting and working out. It trains your heart and your body. Guys, giving is a gift of God that he gives you to train yourself to not fall, not to make money your master. To say that things of future import is more important. Two, the second part other than giving is two, is that you look to the future. If you ever met with a financial planner, they, they'll convince you to start giving up stuff now so that you can meet your goals and needs for later. Right? They'll say, you know, hey, maybe you shouldn't spend all your money eating out or doing all this stuff so that you can have retirement later. Am I right? Have you guys ever met with That's what they'll yeah. typically say. Unless you meet with a bad financial planner, then they won't say that. But Jesus is calling us to something even more significant. We should use what we have now to gain what is spiritual and eternal. You hear people often say, and I've heard this, it doesn't get any better than this. But it does. This is what we need to remember, that a better day is coming, and we should be focused on that day. Guys, can I tell you, this world is not it. And I'll say that again. This world is not all there is. And when we save all our money, effort, and time to live the best life in this world, then you're wasting your money and time. You're wasting it. Because the next world is better. It's better. And we should be living and investing for that one. For that one. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed and into, it, into internal dwellings. What does that verse mean? It's saying this, invest in what is lasting. Invest in what is internal. When someone dies today, we often want to know, what do they leave behind? What is their inheritance? Jesus asked the question, we should ask of ourselves, what do we send ahead? What are we, what are we giving to the next life? What are we living for now? There's so much more. Guys, there's so much more. There's so much more than this fleeting vapor of life we live now. Why do we spend our whole lives either saving for a retirement that may never come? Do you hear me? Why do we spend our whole lives waiting and saving for a retirement that may never come? Putting our security in the fact that we have this. And guys, hear me. This is not saying be a bad steward and save nothing for retirement. Please hear me. I'm not saying that at all. Okay? I'm saying be shrewd and be intentional. Do what God calls you with your money. Don't hoard it. Don't fall in love with it. But be used. Use it for eternal significance. Here's what I mean by that, guys. Guys, can I just tell you this? 
that some of you guys are here and you're called to be the very instruments of missionaries to go around the world. Some of you guys are called to use your wealth to provide jobs for people who need it and need dignity and significance in your communities and the communities around you. Some of you guys are called to feed the hungry. Some of you are called to advance the local church. Some of you guys, all of you guys are called to be a part of the advancement of the kingdom and of the body. Spend your money on things that matter. We can impact the world now. We can impact the world for eternity now. And we can also impact the future. 2 Corinthians 4 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Can I just be honest with you guys? I don't know why I'm asking that question. I'm going to be honest with you guys. Most of us would rather go to Hawaii than go to heaven. I'll say that again. Most of us would rather go to Hawaii than go to heaven. We're more excited about meeting our favorite celebrity than we are meeting Jesus. We're more enthusiastic about seeing a sporting event than we are about worshiping the King of Kings. you know the one who was the older brother who sought after you? Who ran to the darkest of places? Left behind everything. Everything good to chase after you. The one who reaches you. The one who knows you. All the depths of your sin and your darkness and still chooses to say, I love you so much. Captures your heart, takes upon himself the debt and burden of your sin, dies upon the cross, pays the fullness of the penalty, transforms your heart so that you're forever known and forever loved and forever called to purpose. And eternity is now yours. If that is your reality, if that is your truth, if the gospel is yours, then it should radically change you. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot. And often you think you're trying to and you're ending up serving one. You cannot serve two masters. And the Bible is calling you Jesus is calling you to serve him because it's better. It's better. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It's significance. It's better than Hawaii. He's calling you to act shrewdly upon the resources he's given you to be intentional about the way you live your life. And so what does that mean practically? 
You're sitting here be like, okay, that sounds really good. Well, so what does that mean for me? It means, guys, that you think of every decision you make as you live your life, you think, how can I be intentional for living for the kingdom? You think, how do I give what I have for intention, whether it's by time, my resources? How do I live for God and not just for myself? How do I make friends? And what that means by friends is not just paying for people to be your friends, but make eternal significance by building relationships and making disciples. Does that make sense? Are you hearing what I'm saying, my people? How do you follow the Spirit's lead? into advancing the kingdom with everything you've been given. Choose to follow Jesus and act shrewdly in doing so. Amen? Amen. This was not an easy text. It was not. I wish I, last week's was, was easier. Kind of want to go back to last week. But I hope this week taught us something. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We confess that we often love money more than you. We love that what it provides, whether it's significance or material enjoyment or, or, or uh, confidence or, you know, God, for security. We confess that we often choose those things over you, God. Instead, we confess that we turn to those things often over you. And God, may you turn our hearts to know that only in you can we find that kind of confidence. Only when we turn to you should we find our source of, of trust. So may we trust in you, God. May we trust in you. May we choose you as our master. And in doing so, may we be act shrewdly. May we be intel, in, intentional. May we be intelligent. May we be smart in how we invest our resources and our time for your glory and your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.